Hello all, uh, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome to this two-part series podcast on snake symbolism, mythology, and then on the snake goddesses. As you can see, I'm coming to you from a different place today. Um, I'm, I'm at North um, at our cottage and uh, it's a little chilly up here. Uh, but it's really wonderful as well to be in the fresh air and uh, get some fresh sunlight and lake humidity, air, whatever. Um, so today we are going to talk about snakes. I know some of you are like, yeah, snakes, and some people are afraid of snakes. And so I thought that I would start by sharing a little bit about my experience with snakes as well before we dive into their really deep and fascinating history and no it's more than that it's their their archetypal instinctual almost foundation uh within the human existence and certainly within human mythology and tradition um so i've always thought of snakes as interesting animals i mean even being part of here up north um, we see a lot of snakes. There's always snakes around. None of them are venomous. You know, we're in Northern Ontario. So, uh, well, that's not true. I shouldn't say that there are some rattlesnakes up here and, and some other things like that. But the ones that we normally see, especially around my property, are, I was going to say gentle. <laughs> uh, but they're non-harmful, if that's a good word. Um, so I've never really thought much about snakes. Um, as a kid, of course, like many people in the Western world, I only learned about snakes from, you know, Bible class on Sundays. And uh, whenever people would ask me, you know, what do you associate, associate snakes with? Um, it was always some sort of religious answer that I'd been indoctrinated with, like the devil or something evil or something bad. But then in my own actual experience with snakes, um, there's nothing evil or bad about them or even ick. Um, one of my favorite memories was when my son was about four years old, I think. We had one of those parties where they bring animals to the place where you're at. Now, in retrospect, I think, yeah, I don't know if that was really very eco-friendly, um, but that was about 16 years ago or so. And they brought, I think it was a python, a fully grown python. And I remember we were in this big room with all the kids for the party, you know, how you have kids parties and all the parents, the moms were all there. And this guy pulled out this python, this massive snake um, from his bag. And my son was at the front of the class and everybody was watching. And then all the mothers just went running out of the room, right? Well, <laughs> except for me, because of course I wasn't afraid of snakes. Uh, but it was so funny. Like all of these mothers just went like to the door, you know, kind of looking in. And I thought to myself, this is hilarious how we just <laughs> abandon our children uh, from our reaction to the snake. And then the, uh, the, uh, the guy put it around my son's body. You know, my son was like this tall. He still has this picture where he's like smiling, like, and this massive snake. So on both kind of goes from the, to his feet around his body and then down back to his feet. It was massive. It was beautiful. It was a her, actually. She was, it was a female snake. And uh, it's one of my favorite, favorite 
memories of snakes. And I think it's one of the times that I realized that actually snakes are misunderstood, you know? And I think seeing it through my kid's eyes and his excitement and his sort of lack of any form of prior knowledge or association of snakes as bad or evil, I think it just really illuminated for me that there was more to this than I had been taught, you know? Um, so that that's sort of one of my favorite uh, snake memories. My other fa uh, favorite snake and, uh, memory is, uh, actually this happened quite recently, I don't know, maybe four or five years ago, my husband and I, uh, we were up here up north, we had a cottage, <clears throat> we were staying at a place, and we had all the teenagers, you know, uh, stay and come and stay all my kids friends. And uh, we went to the beach. And then they were, you know, the kids were playing, they were doing whatever. So we were like, okay, let's go somewhere more for some adult chilling time and take a break from them. And we had walked off the beach and into this kind of small foresty area. And as we walked into the foresty area, I heard a rattle, you know, and uh, I said to my husband, I go, I think that's a rattlesnake. He's like, nah, rattlesnake. There's no rattlesnake. So literally we're at the mouth of this forest. This, this rattle is like, so I pulled out my phone and I'm like, we need to Google what a rattlesnake sounds like. And so we did, we Google what a rattlesnake sounds like. And lo and behold, it was the exact um, rattlesnake sound. So we were like, okay, perhaps as we were retreating backwards, you know, perhaps this is not the place to hang out. So we, we left that space and, and found another place to hang out. Um, actually, that reminds me of when I was young, 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 a teenager, we went camping at Kilbear Lake. I don't know if, if you're not from Ontario or Canada, it's a, another place up north. And we had camped our tent on the campsite, but sort of in the edge of the forest. And it was only, I don't know, a couple of days later because we had heard the rattling. But, you know, we thought it was in the forest that we realized that there was a rattlesnake nest, like five feet away from where we had placed our tent. I still have a picture of it, although it's an old black and white photo, but um, of the eggs in the nest. So we're just kind of wandering around the campsite, wandering behind the forest. And then I come across this nest full of eggs and I thought, uh, holy shit. Um, and then we realized it was a rattlesnake. snake. And of course we moved our campsite. Um, so yeah, maybe there are quite a, quite a, bit uh, of venomous snakes in Northern Ontario, more than perhaps I led you to believe at the beginning. Um, but they're usually not hurting people. Uh, or maybe we're just a little more careful or other people are even more careful than I was <laughs> about where they put their campsite. Um, so I just wanted to kind of, you know, warm you up to snakes um, and give you a little bit of my own experience of snakes and the way that we interact with nature in the sort of natural instinctual way. And then I find that when we think about snakes too much or when we teach about snakes a lot, that's when we really get into the philosophical or the archetypal or the mythological, you know? Um, I think that when you're in nature, or you see snakes around. I remember there was one time where we thought there was a snake in the dryer, you know, that had come in through the, the tube of the dryer. Um, and 
again, you know, the fear of it is more like hopefully this this animal doesn't get trapped in there. And then first of all, then the worry about if it does get trapped in there and dies, there's other things to do. And so what I mean with that, what I'm saying with that is that our initial human reaction, I think, is this is an animal that requires a certain amount of wilderness or wild respect. Um, but we don't get philosophical really, or we don't think of it as the sort of evil um, thing until we really start to get philosophical. Um, and so I don't know where I'm going with that, but I just thought it was interesting that on a, on a human level, on a human animal level, we have a different experience. And then when we think about it and when we read about it, it becomes a more, like I said, a more philosophical uh, symbol, right? So it's actually that symbol that we're going to talk about, which is, I don't know if I'm doing more harm than good, but I, my intent here is that you don't see snakes that after this podcast, actually both parts, um, you don't see snakes the way you used to before listening or watching this podcast. So that's really my goal. So I hope that that's, uh, that goal will be achieved. You let me know in the comments. Um, and yeah, let's get started. Okay. So the title of the first part of this podcast is, ooh, here it goes, is uh, the serpents of old gods of myth and religion. And I titled it this way because um, I want to separate the two things that we're going to do in the first part. In this part, we're going to actually, I feel like it's a more masculine part. We're fo- I, I Don't quote me exactly if it's a masculine part or not, but I feel like it's, yeah, I feel like there's a masculine energy in this first part of what we're talking about. And then in the second part, I really want to focus on snake goddesses. I know that, I mean, in doing some of this research, right, because I do know some of it, but academics, certainly PhDs, we tend to focus on, we're we're a niche sort of culture. And so we tend to focus on our niche culture. So for me, of course, Artemis is my niche, niche culture. And so I would call myself, and I do call myself an Artemis expert, uh, because that's the, the small, tiny in a, in a, in a world of gods and goddesses, um, aspect that I spend so much of my time studying, researching, blah, 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 connecting. So in order to bring you some of the background to what I want to talk about, um, I, you know, you have to do a little bit of research. Everyone does a little bit of research before their podcasts, I'm guessing. And, uh, in doing some of the research, so I kind of knew what I wanted to talk about, and I knew some of the subjects about snakes that I wanted to talk about that I've been talking about, actually, even in my classes and, and in some of my writing. But in doing some of the research, I came across some really exciting stuff. And so then I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I could do a whole year, um, a whole year of classes or podcasts on just snakes and snake goddesses and snake rituals. Uh, and one of my favorites, for example, is like snake rituals that continue to happen today. People still worship snakes today. There's still snake cults. And of course, people still use snake venom and anti-venom and things like that. So it's a fascinating world. So we're going to informally touch on some of the things that fascinate me and hopefully they fascinate you. Um, and then we're going to try and make connections between 
that mythology or that history or that symbolism to some of our popular culture, some of the way that we experience snake symbolism in the world today, or perhaps we don't even notice that we experience it that way. And so we do. So let's start with sort of the foundational symbols of snakes or, or yeah, the foundational symbols of snakes and what do snakes represent if we were to take like, what are the top three things or the top three categories that snakes really fit into as a symbol? Um, I would take these three. Um, so fertility, immortality, and rebirth, that counts as one. Yeah. Uh, the guardians of the sacred, that would be number two. And as well as venom and healing. So that's sort of death and life, right? So actually the the overarching theme of snakes is life and death. Yeah. I would say if I had to put it in, in a few words, it's life and death. Okay. So how do they do this? How do they become these sort of foundational, these archetypal symbols of these three things that we just discussed? So how do snakes represent immortality, fertility. So snakes have always represented fertility or a creative life force. Um, initially, I think it's because they shed their skins. And so because they're an animal that shed their skins so elegantly, I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I actually just watched an episode or uh, a reel a couple of days ago where a, a snake is just shedding its skin almost like almost perfectly, right? Usually it comes off in in pieces, but this one was shedding its skin so perfectly. And I thought to myself, of course, the ancients were fascinated. Of course, we continue to be fascinated. And of course, the very idea of shedding skin continues to be a psychological association with shedding baggage, shedding weight, shedding the past, yeah, shedding the idea of shedding or letting go or getting rid of an old aspect of ourselves. In the case of the snake, of course, his old skin, her old skin. Of course, it has symbolic meaning. In this way, there's symbols of rebirth, transformation, immortality, and healing, right? In one way, the healing is intrinsic or personal. And we're going to talk about the uh, Ouroboros as a symbol of eternity and continual renewal of life. So we're actually going to talk about a few different snakes, historical snakes um, that are born out of this representation of immortality and rebirth. Um, in some Abrahamic traditions, for example, the serpent represents sexual desire. So, for example, in some interpretations of the Midrash, uh, the serpent represents sexual passion. Um, in Hinduism, Kundalini is a coiled serpent. Uh, there is a snake cult in Albania that continues to be important today. Um, and the snake cult has been widespread among Albanians as a symbol of potency and fertility and as a protector of the domestic hearth. So that leads me to the aspect of guardianship. So snakes have always been seen as guardians. They were often guardians of temples or sacred spaces. Um, and as we'll see, actually, in our part two, they're also the guardians of knowledge. So because of their ability to 
shed their skin because of their immortality, because of their rebirth, they are privileged to sacred knowledge. And they only, then they get to choose who they share the sacred knowledge with. And so in a way they're protectors of sacred knowledge. Yeah. Um, this might come from, for example, how we talked about rattlesnakes um, and the cobras. When a snake is um, threatened in the animal kingdom, the first thing that they do is they hold and defend their ground. And sometimes they even resort to some type of a display of a threat. And so, for example, the cobra opens up its back and the rattlesnake, like I've told you my story, shakes its, its rattles as, as a warning. You know, this is my space. Do not come in. And so rather than retreat, some snakes, particularly the stronger snakes or the scarier snakes, stand their grounds and threaten to fight back. Um, and so in that way, snakes have been seen as guardians. Um, in this image, for example, that I have here, which is uh, of snakes sort of, um, um, what do you call it? Protecting the Buddha. These are called, these are multi-headed nagas, uh, which are guardians of temples and other premises. So it's sort of a, a snake body with multi-heads, or sometimes it could just be a snake or, or a half human, half snake. So for example, in Cambodia, which is where this image is from, you have this symbol of these uh, multi-headed snake protecting or standing over the Buddha. And this is actually, it's, it's, it's as old as 12th century. Uh, the actual image is about 12th century CE. But the idea of the protection of Buddha, of course, was that during his life, when Buddha was sitting under the Bodhi tree, it started to rain. Or in some cases, they say it was a typhoon. And so a cobra or several cobras, these nagas, came up behind him and sort of opened up their backs or opened up their bodies to keep him from getting wet in the rain so he can continue um, his meditation. So they were they used themselves as a shield. So that's actually a really um, interesting story that reminds us how snakes could be guardians. So they can be guardians of knowledge. They can be guardians of temples. And they can be guardians of sacred beings. Now, uh, another interesting um, aspect of snakes as guardians is the Gadsden flag, which is uh, the Gadsden flag is a flag of the American Revolution. And you can see here, and if not, you can just kind of look it up. Um, it's a rattlesnake coils up and poised to strike. Below the image of the snake says, don't tread on me. And so this snake was used to symbolize the dangerousness of colonialists willing to fight for their rights. Um, and so it was used during the American Revolution to warn anybody, for example, England or the British Empire, who was coming in and trying to take or threatening to take or wanting to take um, control of what the colonialists had in, in America at the time. So it's a design that proclaims a kind of assertive warning of vigilance, but also willingness to act in defense against coercion or against being oppressed or any of those kinds of things. Today, this has this symbol of the snake with the don't tread on me is often associated with individualism and liberty. Uh, now in the United States, of course, it's also often associated now with right libertarianism or classical liberalism or small government 
or anything that's kind of distrust or defiance against governmental authority. Um, and so it has become, in a way, a symbol of sort of far-right ideology, um, which may have some negative connotations depending on where you stand politically, um, or positive con connotations depending on where you stand politically. But the key to this is this, like again, this idea of the guardianship of agency, so that the snake is used as a symbol of self-defense. Yeah, you know? it's 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 fascinating, right? fascinating when you think about how much meaning this has and this implies. And then lastly, the idea of medicine and venom as medicine. I mean, I think this idea is probably as old as day. Um, it's the venom has, oh, venom has always been associated with the chemicals of plants and fungi, which have the power to heal, but also they have the power to expand or alter consciousness. Yeah. Sometimes snake venom has been referred to in the past as the elixir of life or even the elixir of immortality. Um, and there are numerous stories. I can't think of someone in specific off the top of my head, but I remember watching stories where people, and historically speaking, actually, where people will create their own anti-venom or antibodies to venom by ingesting venom a little bit at a time. Now, don't, please don't do this at home or, or please don't do this at all. Um, but I remember reading stories, you know, both, both historically and in modern day where people would not guard themselves, but sort of build themselves up or build their immunity up um, to venom by ingesting small amounts of venom at a time. Um, and that's really fascinating in the sense that it, you create sort of an immune to it, an immunity to it. But in, an, in many ways, people talk about the effects of some snake venoms um, as divine intoxication. And so this association um, of venom with altered states of mind makes the snake or associates the snakes as one of the wisest animals because their venom, so the thing that they produce in their body, connects us with a vision, often a vision of the divine or the supernatural. Yeah. So it's fascinating. And also actually, sorry, uh, and also venom can be turned into different um, healing potions. And so um, often people who understand how venom works of the ancient world and of the modern world can, of course, use venom to heal. So, so venom kills, venom connects us to the supernatural, and venom heals, right? Fascinating. Um, and then associate that with the fact that the snake is seen as a chthonic animal, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. In, in a minute, um, a chthonic animal is an animal that is that is on the floor or on the ground or in the earth. But often, what this really refers to is an animal that connects to the underworld, to the unearthed. Yeah, and so so add those properties of healing, of fertility, of immortality to this idea that the snake is on the ground and probably the closest animal to the ground in a symbolic way or the underground or in the earth. And you have this master animal, this master symbol that really embodies 
all of the things that we've just discussed. So fertility, protection, healing, and of course the connection um, to the underworld or to the divine. So snakes are much more complex, I think. So literally as animals, they are not really that complex. Although I suppose a, a biologist who studied snakes has stories and stories of how uh, the environment or ecosystem or life, eco-life of a snake is complex. But as an animal, it is, I guess, equally as complex as others. But symbolically for humanity, I would say it is, and I call it a foundational symbol because it, snakes are a symbol that embody all the things that encompass human life from our fears to our hopes to our connection to the divine and to others. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about snakes in history. Yeah. Because I think that that's really the, the fun part. And that's part of the beginning of this sort of series that I'm, or this two-part series. So let's talk about Nehushtan. So in the biblical story, after the exodus from Egypt, the Israelites are said to have set out from Mount Hor, where Aaron, um, Aaron was buried, and go to the Red Sea. However, they had to detour around the land of Edom. So this is in Numbers 20. They were frustrated. They were impatient. Big surprise. You know, people are often impatient when they're waiting for, you know, to arrive. And they complained against Yahweh and Moses. And in response to this, according to Numbers 21, God sends fiery serpents among them. Okay. So again, what I find fascinating about the story to begin with is the fact that fire and serpent are together. Yeah. As a, as a symbol. So fiery serpents, like what, a, what a, what an archetypal symbol, right? So Moses is already talking to the burning bush. I mean, we haven't done trees as symbols. We'll do that in season two. So much to say about trees and, and shrubs and certainly the burning bush of Moses. So we have this burning bush that represents uh, the divine. And then we have these fiery serpents that are a source of punishment uh, for those who are turning against Moses and Aaron. But after all the fiery serpents were biting and killing people, God took pity on his people and told Moses to erect a bronze serpent. And the Israelites who saw this bronze serpent would be protected from dying from the bites of the fiery serpent, which he had sent. So there is this sort of staff, this representation I've given you here, two images, one in where Moses is standing in front of this sort of cross. Well, it is a cross, a wooden cross where there's a snake, a bronze snake wrapped around it. And another uh, where there's a pillar, you know, a square pillar, a square pillar, sorry, uh, a rectangular tall pillar with a bronze snake on top of it. Either way, there's this bronze snake that becomes symbolic as healing. Okay. And in fact, what happens is, historically speaking, is that historians believe that people started to worship this bronze snake as a divine being because it had healing powers, right? So you're looking at it, just by looking at it, it would heal you from everything else. 
and or from the burning or the poison of the fiery snakes. And so what happens in two kings, uh, there's a passage that describes these reforms that are made by King Hezekiah uh, or Hezekiah, in which he tears down these altars. He cuts down the symbols of Asherah. And I know this may be for another podcast, but Asherah is seen as sort of the early consort of Yahweh. He tears down the symbols of Asherah. He destroys the Nehushtan. Um, And then according, of course, to other translations, he creates these reforms in which no one is allowed to worship any any aspect of a divine idol. Now, this was always the case. You know, you're not supposed to worship any of these divine idols. I mean, God says, you know, you can't worship anyone else but me. Yahweh does. Uh, But it seems that as human beings, we like to have a thing, you know, uh, a material thing. And so what happens is even though you may not think that, let's say, this golden serpent or this bronze serpent is God or Yahweh, um, I doubt people thought that, but they, because it had these healing powers, um, they began to worship it. And so uh, King Hezekiah, for example, argues that this is the problem. This is where the Israelites have gone wrong, that they started to worship all of these idols. Yeah? Um, and so then the Nehushtan becomes um, uh, destroyed, disappears. Now, here's something even more mind-blowing. Okay, so I remember how I was saying that um, the in one of the images or one of the descriptions, the bronze serpent Nehushtan is on top of a pillar. Well, um, this I there is a connection between pillars or poles or you know sacred trees which then become poles, etc., uh, which are symbols of the fertility goddess Asherah, and they're part of that cult paraphernalia. And so imagine that you have this cult paraphernalia of a goddess or Yahweh's consort, whatever, a goddess, as this pillar made from a tree. And then there's a snake on top of it. It actually reminds me of when we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about Isis and we talked about how Isis has the image of the snake on her third eye, on her forehead. And so if we consider Isis's body as the pillar, then the snake on the forehead is almost like a the snake on top of a pillar and because the snake for Isis and Horus, Horus also has the same snake on his forehead represents knowledge and wisdom and especially wisdom and knowledge about the underworld and life and death. It's so fascinating that the same, almost the same identical image, uh, a pillar with a snake on it or a cross or a piece of wood, which comes from a tree uh, with a snake on it um, represents the same protection and guardianship uh, of healing and salvation. It's, it's fascinating. And if you think that that's mind blowing, okay. In my research, I came across, um, this image, which is an, a fascinating image. Okay. Uh, of Jesus on the cross and the way that serpents are associated with, um, trees and particularly with wood, like a piece of wood, which obviously comes from a tree, but uh, it's sort of a piece of um, a rod or a cross, something that wood has been shaped into. So Jesus um, foreshadows the event of his own execution on the cross because he says in John 3, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nehushtan, so even so must the son of man be lifted up that whatsoever believeth in him should not perish, 
but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay. So most people do the second part for God. So loved the world that he gave his own son, but they forget the first part as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the son of man will be lifted up. So there is this connection, this, um, this, I can't even find words. This immediate connection, not immediate, it's not the word, sorry. Sometimes when English is not your first language and you're thinking in four languages, uh, you get these weird things. But there's this, um, (laughs) which is just my apology for not finding the right words at the right time. But there is this, oh, umbilical connection, if that makes sense, between Moses raising the serpent Nehushtan to heal and to save, and Jesus mentioning it in a prophecy of his own being raised on the cross in order to save. It's right. Like my mind just went, what? Um, you know, because I mean, I come out of Catholic school. I went to Catholic elementary school. I went to Catholic high school. I used to go to some Sunday school before, you know, I'd get in some trouble asking questions. Um, it, this, this connection has never been made. Okay. And then furthermore, of course, the Nehushtan or the snake on the pole is then connected to the rod of Asclepius, which is the uh, Greek pagan god of healing. And of course, the caduceus. Uh, or the staff of Mercury, the messenger of the gods. I'm, I'm in the way here, but uh, and actually, we're going to talk about the double-headed snake on the Caduceus as well. But this this, this um, symbol of the snake wrapped around the rod, or the snake wrapped around the cross, or the snake on top of a pillar, such a fascinating connection then with Jesus on top of the cross. And so, for Christians, if you ever ask them about snakes. You know, the only thing they think about, of course, is the Garden of Eden, which we will cover in detail in part two. (laughs) Um, Oh, I can't wait. Anyways. um, And but that's what they think about. You know, they think about the snake in the Garden of Eden. They think about the the devil. They always associate the devil with the snake in the Garden of Eden, Eden, even though there's literally no devil there. Um, They don't ever associate Jesus with the snake. Jesus is the snake on the cross. Jesus is the new Nehushtan on the pole. And that symbol is a symbol of salvation. It's not a symbol of evil. It's not a symbol of the devil. It's not a symbol of nothing. It is a symbol of self, nothing bad. It is a symbol of salvation of, of those who, so in the way that those who looked at Nehushtan were the favorite of God and saved by God, by Yahweh, in the desert, the same way could be applied to Christians that when they look upon Jesus as the sort of serpent or serpent or gift of God, they are saved. Yeah. My mind, right. It's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and of course it reminds us, read your Bibles. Yeah. Read your sacred texts, read, read everything uh, so that you can see the connections. And actually it's one of the reasons why I got into um, well, to be honest, when I went to university, I took religious courses because I grew up a very religious person within Catholicism um, and Greek Orthodoxy because I was born Greek Orthodox. 
Um, and so I had a very strong faith connection and I went to university and I was doing psychology and some other courses in the beginning, but um, I took religious studies on the side because I wanted to educate myself on sort of the history and the connections and all that kind of stuff. And um, of course, with education and with knowledge comes the rip of the veil. Yeah, the pulling of the veil from your eyes. Um, and uh, I learned a lot, but it, it changed me. And perhaps one day we can talk about what that experience was like and how you sort of lose faith and find faith over a period of time, uh, which is what happened to me. Anyways, I digress. Sorry. Uh, if that's actually something you're interested in, maybe I will do a blog on how that happened. Sometimes my students will ask me that, um, but it takes me a while to explain the process because it was so deeply personal, but also such a struggle um, that I... It takes me a while to explain that. And I don't want to sidetrack you here <laughs> um, with our little discussion of snakes. So uh, back to our little discussion, uh, little, it's not little, it's quite expensive. Um, and so I want to talk a little bit about uh, chthonic serpents and sacred trees. So we've talked about how trees, of course, are turned into poles or crosses or et cetera, or rods. Um, but there is also this very clear and ancient association um, of trees being coiled around literally a tree, uh, usually in a divine garden. Usually we see that, for example, in the Genesis story uh, where the snake is often depicted as being either in the tree or wrapped around the tree. Um, and this snake or this serpent has knowledge of good and evil or has knowledge of choice and certainly has knowledge of what happens once Adam and Eve eat that apple. Um, in Greek mythology, for example, there's an example of Ladon, uh, which is coiled around the tree in the garden of the Hesperides, uh, which are protecting the golden apple. And so there's an image here of the uh, of Ladon himself um, around the tree. So Ladon is like a serpent-like or a dragon-like uh, snake that twined and twisted around the tree of the garden of the Hesperides. And the Hesperides were... Uh, the, they're also sometimes referred to as the Atlantes, um, which are the daughters of the Titan Atlas. So uh, they have this tree uh, of golden apples. And if you eat a golden apple, um, you have immortality. This also, of course, is part of Norse mythology, the tree of the golden apple. Um, and in fact, when we look at the Garden of Eden, we're going to talk about how there's no apple in the story of Genesis, and yet an apple is in all the imagery. And the apple is a Western symbol and comes out of this um, tradition of golden apples or, or gold apples. And if you were to eat one, well, first you have to steal one, particularly you have to get over Ladon or past Ladon, and then you have to get past uh, the Hesperides. Um, but if you were to eat one, you would become immortal. So again, here we see the, the, the snake as a guardian and a guardian of immortality. Um, I just also wanted to mention that often snake imagery or serpent imagery in particular um, is overlapping between sort of a snake that we see in the animal kingdom today and the mythological dragons. And so there's, there's an intertwining tradition 
where serpent is mythologically speaking, not necessarily a snake or only a snake, but is something that has a serpentine body, but may also have claws, may also have wings, etc. And so for me, the difference between serpent and snake is, is that very fact that a serpent to me is when I say the word serpent, I refer more to this mythological creature that has legs and sometimes wing or arms and legs and sometimes wings. So more like a dragon figure, uh, a snake. When I use the word snake, although they are intertwined in a way, I think more of a, you know, of a, an animal, a real organic animal you know, in the wilderness. Uh, but the similarity or the overlapping of those two terms, I think is often um, underestimated. And so much of dragon lore comes out of snake lore. So if you're into dragons, you know that dragon lore is snake lore. So Ladon, that's Ladon. Yeah. And then, of course, Ladon, poor Ladon, the snake, gets killed by Heracles um, as his 11th labor. And Her so Heracles kills him with a bow and arrow, and he takes the apples away. Oh, Heracles. One day I will do a, a lecture on Heracles as well, a podcast, sorry, not a lecture, <laughs> but a podcast, sometimes it feels like a lecture, a podcast on uh, Heracles as well, because there's so much to say about him. Yeah, there's so much to say. We, we can do another course actually on Heracles. Um, so Ladon is eventually slain by Heracles and the apples are taken. Sometimes though, um, in some alternate versions of the myth, Ladon is not slain. But uh, Heracles gets the god Atlas to retrieve the apples. Um, and that's the time when Heracles takes um, Atlas's space, holding up the cosmos. Um, if you know your Greek mythology, you know, you know what I'm saying. But um, so there's, there is a bit of a sort of these dual myths. The point being, of course, that uh, Ladon is um, somehow tricked into or killed for um, his... Um, what do you call it for, for uh, in, in his protection on his guardianship of the apples. It's interesting to note that Heracles also slays the Hydra and the Hydra. When we look at monsters in the season of our podcast, we're going to look at some monsters, particularly female monsters. Um, the Hydra is this multi-headed serpent again. And the mythology, of course, around that is if you cut off one of her heads, another one grows back. And we've seen this actually famously in Percy Jackson. And of course, um, Heracles, again, is famously known for killing the Hydra. What's really fascinating about the Hydra, which I hadn't thought of before, you know, I thought, I thought of her as sort of a female monster and the monstrosities of women in association with snakes, but I hadn't thought of her as a naga. So when I saw the image of the Buddha being protected by this multi-headed naga or snake or cobra, I automatically thought of the Greek um, hydra and that representation of the multi-headed snake. But in Greek mythology, that being is seen as a monster, right? So interesting at sort of the philosophical take, the, um, the treatment of certain creatures in different cultures. Um, so Hercules, of course, slays um, Ladon and he slays the Hydra. And in many ways, one could argue that Heracles 
is the rawest, rawest representation of patriarchy in the sense that he's a demigod. So Zeus is his father. He's a bit of, how do I say this gently? He's a bit of a buffoon. I often refer to him as a buffoon. Historically speaking or mythologically speaking, he's not the brightest. Uh, he's a bit of a jock. He drinks a lot. He does a lot of dumb things. And then in order to apologize for them, he does all these labors. So not that he has the most loving childhood, but, and in a lot of his labors, there is uh, some type of a killing or, uh, or murdering of so-called monsters. And so in many ways, the myth of Hercules, particularly killing the Dawn and killing the, the Hydra is symbolic of modernity and particularly patriarchy slaying the ancient significance and influence and magic of serpent lore serpent knowledge and as we'll see in part two serpent lore and serpent knowledge is associated fundamentally with women and so in many ways hercules slaying these two creatures or when Perseus slays Medusa, which we'll talk about, um, that is really a symbol of, of course, patriarchy slaying any type of female connection or female power or female connection to the ancient or the uh, Catholic or the sacred. Yeah. And so in our um, consideration, of the tree of life, of snakes wrapping around the tree of life, protecting knowledge, we come to the story of Ningish Zida. Okay. So remember how I was talking to you about the double snake, the double-headed snake, or the double snake, or what we call sort of the helix uh, symbol. Snakes often are represented um, as coiled around a staff. So we've talked about one snake being coiled around the staff or on top of a pillar. Now we're going to look at the double snake, okay? The two snakes wrapped around uh, a staff. And of course, staffs are often used by, you know, of course, people like Moses or prophets or shamans or um, anybody that's um, connected to the divine or the supernatural. And so snakes coiled around the snap in mythology, such as the caduces of Hermes or the rod of Asclepius or the staff of Moses, um, often dirt date back, okay? They pre-actually date a single serpent entwined around the thought. We can find this double snake wrapped around a staff or this double snake symbol, symbol, symbolism, excuse me, uh, more than 3,000 years BCE, so about 5,000 years ago. And in fact, the oldest known representation of two snakes entwined around a staff is the story of the Sumerian fertility god Ningizida or Ningizida. And this divine being was sometimes depicted as a serpent with a human head, um, or sometimes it was a, uh, a man with two, they have two serpents coming out of his shoulders, or right? Uh, and he he becomes he eventually becomes the god of healing and magic, and um, he is the companion of Dumuzi, uh, who stood at the gates of heaven according to Sumerian history. 
So Ninigesh Zida is a Mesopotamian deity, and which is he was worshipped near this near the area of Ur uh, in the Fertile Crescent. So this is actually where Gilgamesh famously comes from. And in fact, it is said that Ninigesh Zida is an ancestor of Gilgamesh. So we're going to talk about Gilgamesh in a second. And originally, according to Sumerian tradition, he was seen as a tree god. So he was living in the trees or part of the sacred trees. So to wrap up a little bit of the story of Ningishida, I wanted to connect this divinity to a couple of other divinities. Number one, of course, um, this idea that the Sumerian tree snake god makes its way into the uh, Jewish tradition of, and later Christian tradition, and of course, later uh, Muslim tradition of the story of Genesis. And scholars believe, certainly Sumerian scholars believe, that this story made its way into Jewish thought or Jewish lore after the, their captivity or their, cap, their Babylonian captivity or their Babylonian exile. And so while, while they were in exile, they had um, heard all of these lores around a tree connected to, uh, uh, sorry, a snake connected to a tree, and then this sort of bled into their own um, ideas. And in fact, when we look at the Garden of Eden, we're going to talk about how the very purpose of that story is to actually destroy the power and influence of the symbol of this snake wrapped around a tree that has knowledge, certainly sacred knowledge. Um, another fascinating aspect, of course, of the double snake wrapped around a tree, or just a double snake, is this idea of the double helix. Uh, so the double helix of DNA, that is the fundamental bl blueprint of life. Um, and this biological organic connection between the mysterious um, and life right? The beginning of life. Uh, and Ingus Jida, of course, was popularized in the 20th century by a man named Raku K, who is the actually the, the founder of Riki, uh, which is the way of the fire dragon. I don't know if you've ever heard of Riki, but Riki is a Japanese form of energy healing, which is considered an alternative sort of medicine. And Riki practitioners use a technique called palm healing or hands-on healing, through which some type of universal energy or life energy or chi um, is transferred through the palms of the practitioner to the patient in order to encourage emotional or physical healing. And so Reiki is practiced today, of course, in the West. Um, and it's, it's done either by touching or non-touching. If you've ever been a Reiki patient, uh, or you've ever been for a Reiki healing. And so it's based on the energy, but it, the, the way of the fire dragon is actually the, the idea that the serpent, that the energy of life is serpentine, right? And you can imagine how it's serpentine, either that it's wrapped around our chakras or that it snakes itself around our chi points and that the practitioner of Reiki uses their own energy as, again, in a serpentine way um, to flow. So there's that association of water, of rivers, of snakes as 
to flow through your body and to sort of unblock the places in your body that are blocked or that are causing you pain. And so Reiki practitioners believe that in doing this and in flowing their energy and your energy and snaking them together, that, um, that heals, that heals either if you have a physical ailment or of course, particularly if you have an emotional ailment. And again, I go back to the stories within Christianity as well of the laying on of hands. I mean, healing with the laying on of hands is cross-cultural, cross-temporal, cross-geographical tribes as old as time and human existence have been using as shamans have been healing with the laying of hands and the idea that either the individual has a source of power that heals or the very energy of the individual heals or et cetera. Um, and of course, in Christianity, we have Jesus with the laying of hands. Um, and in the modern world, we have traditions, certainly within Christianity and other cults where people lay their hands, for example, in the evangelical tradition, the laying of hands to heal. What's fascinating about these traditions is that they're not Christian. They are traditions that are adapt that were adapted by Christianity um, because they were so powerful in the consciousness and unconsciousness of the cultures through which Christianity had gone through and converted. And because these practices were so fundamental and so powerful, they either had to be destroyed or incorporated or adapted or assimilated. And this tradition of the laying of hands, of healing through energy, of healing through prayer, and in a way prayer is energy, or healing through vibration, is a type of healing that is serpentine in nature, that is connected with the movement of the snake, the movement of our heel, the movement of our bodies, the movements of water, the movements of the flowing movements of healing are also the movements of snakes. And so that part is quite fascinating, I think. Um, if we tie that into the fact that Nin Gizida, if you split that up, is another name for the ancient Hensu concept of Kundalini. We've talked about Kundalini, which is a, a Sanskrit word that means coiled up or coiling like a snake. And Kundalini really refers to the intelligence behind yogic awake, awakening and spiritual maturation. So yoga, of course, in the West, yoga has been assimilated in exercise <laughs> um, and championed by Western women. Um, but in traditional yogic practice, um, the concept is not about stretching and exercise, although of course the physical does influence the unconscious and even, of course the conscious and, and healing, but it's, it's about yoga. It's about awakening or spiritual maturation. And in particular, yogic practice is about altering your mental state. And so Kundalini um, is a way of untightening or uncoiling. Yeah. Um, Uh, karmic vibration, if that makes sense. Okay, so in using Kundalini practice, you use serpent power in order to release or awaken your own uh, spiritual uh, maturation. So it's a, a sort of tight, uh, um, sorry, an altered state of consciousness. And in fact, some yogic practice, particularly um, in India and in other South Asian countries, really have to deal with 
practicing through pain or through tightening or breathing through the hard parts or the coiled up parts, if that makes sense. And so again, we have this connection with knowledge, healing, altered states, and snakes. Um, So very, very fascinating. There's also a theory that the staff around which the snake is coiled is actually the human spinal column. Okay. And in the case of the two coiled snakes, yeah, they usually cross each other seven times, right? Archaeologically speaking, or yeah, they cross each other seven times. And this is a possible reference to the seven energy centers or the chakras. So there's just so much, there's just so much. I haven't even, we haven't even talked about the Ouroboros or the Orphic egg or Jurgamund, the Norse mythology snakes or Leviathan. We haven't even gotten there. So I think my friends, this has spontaneously become a trilogy because um, we're way, way into uh, our time here and I don't want to keep you here forever. So let's bring it to, um a closure here okay and i want to thank you for watching we will continue this in part two of now it has spontaneously become a three-part series um so we will continue through part two next week where we will wrap up the sort of like i said the sort of masculine uh, or foundational symbols of the snake. And we will talk about the Ouroboros and we'll talk about uh, the apocalypse and we'll talk about all those exciting things before we get um, to the snake goddess and the numerous ways in which that has produced human consciousness or has affected human consciousness and unconsciousness um, in its own symbolic way. So thank you so much for watching. Um, If you like these kinds of podcasts, please follow, please review uh, if you like it uh, and please share with your friends, Um, visit my channel, whether it's here or on Spotify um, and also actually purchase my book, uh, She Who Hunts, available on Amazon if you're into Artemis um, and into ancient Greek lore. Uh, That is all for today. Thank you so much, all of you for watching. I will see you all next week in part two of our, what is now our trilogy. Bye all. Have a great day.